didn't know he was leading singing to about three minutes before the service started. <laughs> so I'm, I'm thankful for his willingness to do that. And um, as we continue with our service, let's uh, bow our heads and uh, bring our time before the Lord. Father, we give you thanks for your goodness to us. And Lord, uh, even this week as we recognize those among us who have been suffering, we're thankful for you preserving Danny Proctor's life. We're thankful for the medical care that he has received and that he will receive. We're thankful for Scott and his presence with us. Thank you for preserving him and your grace and your kindness and mercy on display there. And Lord, we do lift up before you those others in our congregation who have different ailments, different sicknesses that they're dealing with, some very serious. And Lord, we would ask that you would continue to preserve them and that they would be healed. Father, most of all, in all that we do say and think, we want to be pleasing to you. We want to be godly before you and before others. And Lord, we ask for your help in encouraging us and exhorting us and even disciplining us when we are not in line with your word and doing what you have commanded for us to do. Father, we know that you have created good works for we as believers to do. We don't get saved by good works, but we are saved to do good works. Lord, help us to be clear in that message, especially at this time of year where people are at least thinking about the term Easter, many who have no idea as to what it means, many have no idea about Jesus Christ, maybe having never heard his name, help us to be a physical representation of you and our Lord before them. And Lord, as Conway has already talked about this morning with the tracks that we have, Lord, help us to be ready to tell others about Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to be able to take opportunities, notice opportunities that we have to share with others around us the truth of your word that Christ has died for our sins and he rose again that we might have new life. Lord, give us boldness. I was reminded this week in a conversation with a man who is 67 years old who never had anybody talk to him about Jesus outside of a church building. Help us not to be guilty of that. Help us to always be ready to speak of our Lord and Savior wherever we're at and with whomever we are with. Finally, Father, we ask that as we look at your word this morning, that our hearts would be yielded to the Spirit 
that our minds would be open, that we would be free from distractions, that we would be able to think clearly and properly about what you have said in your word. We commit this time to you. It is our desire and prayer that you be exalted and you be praised this morning, that what we say, do, and think would bring praise and glory to your son, Jesus Christ. We recognize that we are able to come to you. We are able even to meet together and have fellowship with one another because of what Christ has done for us and that we are in him. And it's in his name that we pray, amen. Why don't we take just a few minutes to greet one another. Go ahead and find your seats. get back to your seat, go ahead and open your Bible up to our scripture reading today, which will be John, the Gospel of John, chapter 12. There in the bulletin, it looks like it's chapters 12 through 50, but hopefully you know there's not 50 chapters in the Gospel of John. Does anybody remember how many chapters are in the Gospel of John? Real quick. 21, 21, that's right, good. So John chapter 12, on this Palm Sunday, it's an appropriate passage for us to read. It would be tomorrow on the 10th of Nisan, that the children of Israel would be choosing a lamb. They would go out and they would either buy or take from the flock that they had a lamb that was going to be the Passover lamb. Then on the 14th day of the month, in the evening, They would take and they would kill that lamb, they would cook it, and they would eat it. And that would be part of their Passover meal. And so we come to John chapter 12, verse 1, and it says, Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. And there they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with a fragrance of oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. 
For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but uh, that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. The next day, so this is five days before Passover, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Therefore, the people who were with him when they called Lazarus, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees, therefore, said among themselves, you see, uh, excuse me, you see that you are accompanying, accomplishing nothing. Look, the whole world is going after him. Verse 20. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him, my father, will honor. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it, was, that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. The people answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus said to them, A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light 
lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. Verse 37. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts, and turn, so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world, that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. The Gospel of John, chapter 12. Now with your Bible in your hand, turn to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6. This morning we'll be looking at verses 6 through 10, 6 through 10. The last hymn that we sang this morning at the cross ends with the phrase, and now I am happy all the day. I am happy all the day. And this connects to our passage this morning because part of our passage is about contentment. It's about being content. And we'll see where contentment lies in the Christian life. Uh, last week, as we looked at the... Uh, passage at the end of verse 2 through verse 5, we saw the character of the false teachings, and we saw the character of the false teacher. This week, we'll see the motivation, the motivation of the false teacher. And what Paul begins to do here in our passage is that he picks up on the topics of godliness and gain, 
godliness and gain, and he moves from those two topics on to contentment, what we might just generically call happiness. And, you know, contentment is something that everyone, without exception, everyone wants. Everyone wants to have satisfaction in life. Everyone wants to be happy in life. And when we look at the world, we see people who are trying to gain contentment through all kinds of means. Some people think that making money will bring them contentment. Other people, it's sex, power, prestige, family, legacy, service to others, and even sacrifice. They believe these things will make them content and make them happy. They are trying to answer the question, what can I do so that I will be satisfied? What will bring me satisfaction? And very often, although not always, but often, the things that people believe will satisfy them are going to be the very things that bring them hurt and even ruin. We see this happen all around us in the world. And what is really sad is when Christians adopt that same point of view. When they believe their contentment can come through all these things that the world has to offer. Even though they know better, or at least they should know better, they should know none of that stuff brings true contentment. They still try to satisfy themselves with those things. And so Paul is going to be addressing the motivation of the false teachers because their motivation, their desire is wrong. Their desire is to find contentment in materialism. And so Paul is not shifting. It's not, this is not a totally different topic from what he has just addressed in the passage before. But he's addressing this issue of contentment in connection to the attitude and character of the false teachers. Now, from a Bible study point of view, if you look at your passage there, this morning, one of the things you'll notice is that there are no commands in this passage. Remember, here recently we've been talking about commands and how the latter part of 1 Timothy is just loaded with commands. Command after command after command. In this section here in verses 6 through 10, there are no commands. Now, just as you're giving you some Bible study principles here, when you're in a section of the Bible and you have a bunch of commands, command after command after command, and all of a sudden you have a section where there's no command, we have to realize that something different is happening. Something different than what Paul has said before is happening here. He is either going to introduce a new topic, which he's not doing, or he's going to apply what he has said, or he is going to explain what he has just said. And what we see here this morning 
is that he is going to explain about what he has just said. He has just talked about the character of these false teachers, and now he's going to explain more about that as he talks about their motivation. So I'm sorry you don't have an outline in your bulletin there this morning. When I came in this morning, the printer, or not the printer, but the other thing, copier, that's the word I'm looking for, was not cooperating, and uh, I did not have time to correct it or punish it or do anything to bring it in line, so you don't have an outline this morning. But hopefully the outline's not too complicated and you can follow along. So uh, let's, look at, let's look at these verses together. Let me read them for us, and then I've got a few things I want us to look at. Verse 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out of it. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So the first thing we see here in verse 6 is that contentment goes with godliness. Contentment goes with godliness. It says, now godliness with contentment is great gain. And so Paul begins with a contrast here. The word now, at least in my translation, the word now could be rendered as but or and. And Paul is drawing a contrast with this word between verse 5 and verse 6. And here's the points of contrast. The points of contrast that Paul is trying to make is between godliness and gain. He's, he's, he's got these two words that he's using, godliness and gain. Look at verse 5. Look at the, about the middle of the verse. It says, who suppose godliness is a means of gain? He's talking about the false teacher who thinks that if I act, in a certain way, I will profit from it. And by profit, it's talking about getting material wealth, whether we're talking about money or stuff or whatever it might be. This is being contrasted here with verse 6, where godliness with contentment is great gain. So you see godliness in both passages and you see gain in both passages. So this is the contrast that Paul is trying to draw. Now what is godliness? Godliness is a behavioral or a conduct word, isn't it? It's, it's what talks about what you're doing. So godliness is God-like behavior or behavior that God likes, or behavior that is pleasing to God. But one of the things we see in this verse is that godliness, in order for it to be gained, must be accompanied by contentment, by the right attitude. 
And uh, so we see that these false teachers, if we go back to verse 5, the godliness that they are talking about is not true godliness. You can write this passage down uh, in connection to the false teachers here. Uh, 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, which says, Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And from such people turn away. This is the false teacher here. They have a form of godliness. They don't have true godliness. So Paul is contrasting what the false teacher thinks about godliness and what true godliness is. And he's also contrasting this idea of gain. The the idea of getting something. For the false teacher in verse 5, gain is the goal. Gain is their objective. In other words, they're going to do what they do because they want to get something. Whereas in verse 6, gain is godliness or godliness is gain. In verse 5, according to the false teacher, gain is the main thing. In verse 6, the main thing is godliness. And so we see this contrast between what the false teacher thinks about godliness and gain and what is true godliness and what is true gain. And so there's this misconception of godliness and gain by the false teacher. They have a misconception. The false teacher views gain as the goal of godliness. One is godly, at least on a surface level, at least in a form, they are godly in order to get something. But their being godly is motivated by their desire to get power, prestige, and money. It seems like what Paul is doing here is he is giving a preemptive warning against men who might want to be elders. You remember, if you just look back in chapter 5, verse 17, chapter 5, verses actually verses 17 and 18, it says, let elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in word and doctrine. And then in verse 18, it talks about their remuneration. This is how you honor the elder who rules well and labors in word and doctrine. Verse 18 is about the remuneration. It seems like what Paul is doing here is also preemptively addressing if there's a man, this, who we know is a false teacher, maybe they didn't know him as that, but if there's a man who thinks that ministry is so that they can gain material wealth, you have to avoid this guy. This is not someone you want to be in a prominent role in the church. So these false teachers had a misconception of godliness and gain. In their mind, godliness produced for them material wealth, gain. What Paul says is godliness is gain. It is gain as long as it is accompanied with contentment. 
So just doing the right thing is insufficient. A form of godliness is insufficient. You don't get gain just by doing the right thing. It has to be accompanied with uh, contentment. Now this word contentment that we see here uh, in verse 6, this word contentment comes from the word sufficient. Sufficient. The idea is being sufficient in oneself, being satisfied in oneself, being satisfied with what you have, what uh, you've got. And 2 Corinthians, you can write this down here next to contentment. This is dealing with contentment. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8 is helpful here because it says this. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you so that you, always having all sufficiency, that's our word contentment, having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. So how is it possible to have all sufficiency in all things? It is because of God's abounding grace towards us. Having God's favor, having his grace towards us is enough for us to be content in everything. So what we see here in verse 6 is that Paul is painting this picture of contrast, he's, and he's emphasizing contentment as the key. So he's, he's talking about this contrast of godliness and gain, and he's saying the difference is the attitude. The false teachers don't have the right attitude. He's saying the right attitude is to have godliness, do the right thing, with the right attitude, which is an attitude of contentment. Now, what's the opposite? Let's just think about this a little bit. What's the opposite of contentment? Discontentment, right? Discontentment. Um, discontentment leads to coveting and envy. Coveting and envy. Last week, we saw that one of the characteristics of the false teacher was envy. They had envy, thinking that they deserve what somebody else has. That is envy. You can be envious of what another person has, of their marriage, of their family, of their job, of their position in the church, of the way they relate to others. It's, it's you are jealous of what someone else has. But we all must also consider the fact that discontentment also leads to coveting. And the Bible has quite a bit to say about coveting. Coveting is this unhealthy desire for something that is not yours, for something that belongs to someone else, and you want exactly what that other person has. The tenth commandment, the tenth commandment of the Ten Commandments, the tenth commandment is to not covet, to not covet. Now, you remember the Ten Commandments, don't you? The first four of those commandments deal with man's relationship to God. The last six deal with man's relationship to other man. So 
think of it this way. One through four is vertical, vertical between man and God. Versus, uh, uh, commands six through ten are horizontal between man and man. And so when we covet, when we covet, we not only do something detrimental to our relationship with God because he's the one who says don't covet, but when we covet, it is detrimental to our relationship with one another and to society as a whole. Coveting, when you look at coveting in the Bible, it's never general. It's never general. He just wants to be wealthy. That's not how the word covet is used. Covet is always used with a concrete object or person. So in the Ten Commandments, you are not to covet your neighbor's wife. You're not to cover, covet your neighbor's house or their possessions. It's all concrete. You want exactly what someone else has. That's coveting. In the New Testament, the most important passage for Christians on coveting is found in James chapter 4, verse 2. Let's flip there real quick. We're, we're in the New Testament here, so we don't have to go too far to the right. James chapter 4, verse 2. Most important passage on coveting for Christians. It says, you lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. So in the context here, coveting, while uh, it is viewed wrongly as a way to obtain things, it shows us here in this passage. Now, we just read one verse, but you, if you, we would have to read all the way through verses 1 through 6 to get the whole context. But what we see here in this context is that coveting only leads to division and fights among believers. And the thing that produces our coveting is our desire to fulfill our own pleasures. The thing that produces coveting is our desire for self-satisfaction. And that can even lead to us praying for unholy things. Praying in an unholy manner. It goes on to say, you ask, verse 3, you ask, that's you praying, you ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss. You ask amiss in order that you may spend it on your own pleasures, your own satisfaction, your own self-gratification. Coveting can lead to us even praying wrong. Paul is talking about contentment. The opposite of, of contentment is discontentment, and being discontent leads to coveting and envy. And this goes in to verse 7 because Paul tells us how to be content. He tells us what should make us content. So back to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7. And he's really trying to show that materialism, 
Materialism fails to give contentment. Verse 7, we brought nothing into this world and it's certain we can take nothing out. We brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out. So let me summarize what Paul says here in more modern terminology. There is no U-Haul behind the baby carriage or casket. I mean, we've heard the expression, there's no uh, U-Haul behind a hearse, right? We've all heard that expression. Paul is saying the same thing here, but he says, there's no U-Haul behind a baby carriage or a casket. And his point here is, when you come into the world, you have nothing. And when you leave the world, you have nothing. And if you are just concerned about being content in this world, you have a wrong perspective on life. Because you think that just the here and now is all that exists. But the Bible is clear that every person who is born exists forever. Do you realize that? Do you realize every single person who has ever been born exists forever? Their spirit and soul goes on forever. In fact, the Bible tells us that one day everyone will be resurrected. Every single person will experience resurrection. For the believer, it's a resurrection to life in the presence of the Lord forever. For the unbeliever, it's a resurrection to judgment and being sent to the lake a fire. Everyone will experience resurrection. And Paul's saying you have the wrong attitude if you think everything in life is just about the here and now. If you think contentment in the moment is what is going to make you happy, you're wrong. You're wrong. He also is pointing out the fact that when you think your whole attitude, your whole life, your purpose in life is about getting stuff, you're wrong. You're wrong. Your purpose in life is not to get stuff. Your purpose in life is not to gain here and now. You know, all religions and all philosophies try to answer the question, what is man's purpose? What is man's purpose? Do you realize every single religion and philosophy either answers that question with more questions or meaninglessness, nonsense. Only the Bible has the answer to the purpose of life, and it's very clear that our purpose in life is not to gain stuff. And so how do we get contentment? Verse 8, how do we get contentment? Paul says, be content with minimal. Now, that goes against everything we know as Americans, doesn't it? He says, be content with minimal. Look what it says. It says, having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Paul is talking about the bare essentials for survival in this life. Now, we as Americans, by definition, I don't care how much money you have or how much money you don't have. By definition, we have more than what we need. By definition, we have more than what we need. We have more than one pair of socks. 
we have more than one outfit because you know I pay attention I, I take notes about what everybody wears every Sunday and I can tell if you're wearing the same thing or not <laughs> I can't actually the truth is I can't even tell what I wore last week you know if I wore something different this week so <laughs> so uh, but we have more. We have more than our senses. Paul uses the phrase food and clothing there. Now, that word for food, is, it's, a, it's more general than that. It's actually the word for subsistence or sustenance, and it actually means food or water. It's talking about food or water, what, what you need to take into the body in order to survive. The word for clothing is likewise a general thing, and it's actually just the word for covering. So it could be clothes or it could be shelter. It could be shelter. Now, what do we need as human beings? What do we need for survival? The bare minimum, we need three things. Food, water, shelter. That's what we need. So if you ever get stuck in the middle of the desert, since I know lots of you travel out into the middle of the desert, if you ever get stuck in the middle of the desert, that's what you look for. Water, food, and shelter. That's what you need to survive. And Paul says, with these, we will be content. We will be content. Paul uses the future tense there, but I think what he's doing is, is he's giving a certainty. Not that we're going to be content in the future, but right now, these are the things that will make us content. These are the things that should make us content. Just the bare essentials. So Paul is saying, in contrast to what the false teachers think and what they're teaching, that your godliness doesn't uh, have it as its goal to get material wealth, thinking that that is what will make you content. If I just have this, I'll be content. If I just had that... I'll be content. Paul says, as believers, we know that in the physical world, we need certain things. And if we have what we need, not what we want, but what we need for survival, we are to be content with what we need to live on. Not what we need to have five cars in the driveway, not what we need to have a nice big house. Not what we need to have three meals a day. What we need, what we need to survive, this is what gives us or should provide for us contentment. Now, Paul goes in, on in verses 9 through 10 and he connects contentment and desire. So he gets right down to the issue in verses 9 and 10 when he's addressing contentment and desire. In verse 9 we see that the desire for riches brings destruction. The desire for riches brings construction. Uh, this is what it says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drowned men in destruction and perdition. So wrong, a wrong desire leads to falling into temptation a trap 
and lusts. Now, who's the one who's going to fall here? Who's the one, in this verse, who's the one who falls? It is the one who desires to be rich. Notice it doesn't say the rich fall. It doesn't say the rich fall. It says those who desire to be rich. They fall. Now, this word desire, interesting, there's actually two words for desire here. Uh, this word Desire. Then later on, it says the word lust. So those are two different words that express the idea of wanting, wishing, or desiring. This word, however, is very specific in that it's talking about not only wanting something, but also devising a plan to get what you want. It's talking about making a plan to get what you want. This is something that is planned, this desire to get what you desire. And this desire results in falling. And you fall into three things. Temptation, a, a snare, and lust. Uh, temptation. Connect temptation to the passage, James chapter 1, verse 14. James chapter 1, verse 14, where it tells us that our temptation doesn't come from God. It comes from our own desires. That's where our temptation comes from. Our own desires, uncontrolled desires, this is what leads us into temptation. And so one of the questions that comes up is, how then do we avoid temptation? If, if we are so weak when it comes to our desires, comes to what we want, how do we avoid the temptation that those desires can lead into? I mean, a lot of us have desires that are not bad in and of themselves, right? I mean, about 12 o'clock today, you're going to desire what? Food. <laughs> you're going to desire some food. Uh, and not too long, you might be desiring a cup of coffee. Okay. Now, are those things wrong? Is it wrong for us to desire, to have a want for those things? No. But uncontrolled desire is something that is wrong. We have to control our desires. If we don't control our desire uh, for food, what happens to us? Hurts our body, doesn't it? it? It makes us unhealthy. So how can we, how can we avoid temptation? In the Bible, you see two things for avoiding temptation. Paying attention, paying attention to yourself and prayer. Paying attention in prayer. In the Lord's Prayer, so this is in Matthew 6 and Luke 11. In the Lord's Prayer, the Lord tells his disciples to pray this way. You remember the phrase, you, that phrase, lead us not into temptation. So in prayer, we ought to be asking the Lord so that we can get out of temptation, that we're not led into to temptation. Also, in Matthew chapter 26, Mark chapter 14, and in Luke chapter 22, it talks about watching and praying so you don't fall into temptation. Watch, paying attention to yourself and praying. So if we have a wrong desire, a desire to be rich, there is a fall that happens. We fall into temptation, but we also fall into a trap. And the word here is like an animal trap. You know, when I was a kid, we used to build these box traps. Anybody else ever do that, build box traps? So you build these box traps, right? And you rig them up with a little door on the front, and you put some bait in the back of it, and you rig up a, a trigger. 
And when the animal comes in, it hits that trigger and the door goes closed and they get stuck. Now the problem with a box trap is your target animal might be a rabbit. But oftentimes you end up catching a possum or worse, a skunk. That's right. You catch a skunk because there's not a sign on the trap that says rabbits only, you know. And, but there's a trap. And, and so what you're doing with that trap is you're de trying to deceive the animal, right? That animal has a desire. They want something. They want it. And you put that desire in the back of the box trap. And that animal knows this doesn't look right. This is not a tree. This is not a hole in the ground. This is unnatural. They know that. But you know what? They got that desire for that food that's in the back of that trap. So what do they do? They start to go in. They start to go in. They have second thoughts sometimes and come back out. But then their desire overpowers their instinct. And they go in and they hit that trigger. It's too late. Door comes down and they are trapped. Desiring to be rich, desiring to have material wealth is the same way. When you have that desire, you're going into the trap. And you're going to get stuck. And you also, you not only fall into temptation and a trap, but you also fall into uh, many harmful and foolish lusts. So lusts that are, this is another word for desire, lusts that are irrational. They just don't make any sense. And lusts that are self-harming. That's really the, the idea of that word harmful. It's self-harming. I mean, we know people. We know people who in their life, they have expressed desires for things that don't make sense, that don't make any sense at all, and are in fact self-harming to them. And we see what it says here in God's word is that these things that you fall into because you want to be rich, these things actually destroy and ruin us. It says, which drown men in destruction and perdition. The end result of desiring to be rich is not contentment, it is destruction. How many of you have heard of the story of a man named Jack Whitaker? Jack Whitaker. It's from a guy from West Virginia who some years ago, won Powerball. He was one of the winners of Powerball, and he won $314 million. $314 million. Now, Jack Whitaker was not a poor man. He was the president of a large construction company, and some people estimate his worth before he won the lottery was like $17 million. But keep in mind, if you're, you own a construction company, one piece of equipment can be a million dollars, okay? So it's, it's not all that impressive. $314 million in, in uh, cash and money, now that's impressive. And he won this money. 
And when he won this money, he gave away some of it to churches, Christian causes. He started a foundation that would provide food and clothing for the needy. And then things turned really, really bad for him. Things did not remain too well for very long. In less than a year, he had over a half a million dollars in cash stolen from his car while he was at a bar. Christian man, Christian man, at a bar, half a million dollars stolen from his car. He was drugged. Someone drugged him in an effort to get his money. He was robbed a second time of over $200,000. His granddaughter's boyfriend overdosed and died. His granddaughter herself was found dead, wrapped in a tarp behind an old junk car. He was sued by a casino for bouncing a million and a half dollars in checks. His daughter died under suspicious circumstances. All of this happened after he won $314 million. After all that, do you think Jack Whitaker would have said, I'm happier now than I've ever been? No way, no way. He, he died a man whose spirit was broken not too long after that. So what we see here is this desire to be rich and a desire to think riches are going to solve my problems and bring contentment. Actually, it just brings destruction. And we see in verse 10 that the desire for money leads to strain from the faith and gives a self-inflicted harm, self-inflicted harm. This is a common, we know this, this statement here, for the love of money is the root of all evil. It's a proverb. It comes from Greek literature. Paul just uses it for his own purposes here. But I want you to notice it doesn't say money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. The love of money is just like what it says in verse 9, the desire to be rich. Paul's just expanding on that idea. He says the love of money is the root, it's the foundation, it's the source of all kinds of evil. So Paul's argument through this entire passage has been these false teachers not only have a compromised and corrupted message, their character is compromised and corrupted, and their motivation is compromised and corrupted because they believe by gaining material wealth will bring them contentment. The Bible and even our own personal experience tells us material wealth, having stuff, doesn't bring contentment. When's the last time you bought something and then all of a sudden you found out, I'm not very content with that. For Christmas, I bought Elizabeth a can opener, electric can opener. Okay, great, great, you know, it's a tool. Who doesn't want to get a tool for Christmas, right? That's how men think. Um, so I bought her an electric can opener and I thought, man, this thing's great. It's the 
kind that you, it's not in a, you know, like a big appliance that you have on your counter. You just take it and you put it on top of the can and you lock it down, hit the button, it does its, the rest, right? I thought, man, this is great because you can just do that and hit it and go. And you don't have to sit there and watch it. You don't have to hold anything. It does it all itself. This thing's great. It never worked. It never, ever worked. So in anticipation of, of my satisfaction, which I don't know about what she thought about it, but in anticipation of my satisfaction, I was disappointed. I was disappointed because stuff is never going to satisfy. Here's three lessons real quick we see in this passage. Obedient behavior. We need to have obedient behavior. We need to have godliness. But godliness is only true godliness. Doing the right thing is only truly godly when we have the right attitude. Compliance, doing what is right, is not obedience. Compliance, doing what is right, has to be joined with the right attitude in order to be obedient. And God wants us to be obedient. He doesn't just want us to be compliant to what he says. He, want us to, he wants us to be obedient, to do what is right out of the right attitude and motivation, a love for him. Secondly, money. Money. The fact of the matter is we all have money issues. Some of us have more money than others. Some of us, our money issues are we just don't have enough money. Other people is, I have money that I don't know what to do with. I'm not one of those, okay? Uh, but some people have that problem. But money is never the issue in, it, in and of itself. Money is never the issue. It's our attitude towards money. That is the issue. You know, in the Bible, we see people who had money. Wealthy people. Barnabas an example of that. He sold land and gave what he earned from that land to the church. In, in the history of the church, we know there are Christians who've had money, even today. Um, um, the best modern day example of that is an, a guy named uh, R.G. Letourneau. Have you heard of R.G. Letourneau? International businessman, a giant in the earth-moving world. His major contribution was not into the construction world, though. It was in the cause of Christ. He set up a foundation that's worth somewhere over $40 million today. And they give hundreds of thousands of dollars away each year to Christian organizations and causes. At the end of his life, according to his biography, I read that quite a while ago now, but according to his biography, he was giving, he and his wife were giving away somewhere between 80 and 90% of his income every year at the end of his life. Here's a man with money, wealthy man. But he used his money for the Lord. And no matter how much money we have, whether an R.G. Letourneau or a widow with a couple mites, it's not about how much we have. It's about how we use what we have. Are we going to use it for the Lord? And we also need to understand that contentment, contentment never comes from stuff. True contentment only comes by putting God at the center of your life. 
And God at the center of your life begins with a relationship with him, a relationship that you can only have by trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior. That's the only way we can be content. It's with God at the center. And the only way God can be at the center of our life is if Jesus Christ is our Savior. That we accept on faith that he died for our sins on the cross and he rose again that we might have newness of life. And we place our trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior. This is the only way genuine contentment can come. The only way that we can be genuinely content is for Christ to be in our life and for God to be the center of our life. Only then can we say, with food and clothing, this, these things, we shall be content. Won't you stand with me as we close in a word of prayer? Father, we give you thanks for your goodness to us. And even as we think about contentment and the right attitude that we ought to have, the right desires we ought to have, and things pertaining to this world, we need to recognize that you have richly given us everything that we need. You have provided everything that we need. Most of all, you have provided your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And Lord, if there is one here who hasn't accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, we ask today that their heart wouldn't have peace and that they couldn't get Jesus off of their mind, that they would ask to know more, to know and believe that Jesus Christ died for their sins on the cross and rose again that they might have new life and that this new life is a change that God works in us, not that we do anything, but he does the work. And it totally changes us, changes our perspective to the point that we can say, just with the essentials of life, we can be content. Lord, help us to be content Christians today, this week, and for the months to come. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.